What's up, folks? Welcome to the Emulsion episode 18. My name's Justin Kana. Happy morning. Happy Monday morning to you all. I got a great show planned for you today. We go into a bunch of different directions today. We're going kind of into the fine dining realm, and then we go talk about world records for a little while. Food writing, technology, there's there's a lot to talk about today, and we don't just talk about, you know, some awards or Michelin stars or anything like that. Today's beverage is a little concoction that I made for myself. I had some cherries that needed to get used. My girlfriend and I have a little tiny herb box outside. Uh, and so I made a limeade, cherry limeade, with some basil from our little urban garden that we have on our little balcony. Uh, so this is super refreshing. Uh, the vessel is a little mason jar, if you can see that on the video. It says always tasty on it. This is from a restaurant here in Seattle called Trove. They serve you little parfaits in these, and then they let you take them home. So that's interesting, a little local... Super local beverage today. None of that African coffee. So you can be jealous of my refreshing beverage. Maybe you can make one yourself. Uh, let's get into all these stories. Uh, to start off today, I want to kind of delve into a topic that I've actually had come up in my personal life as I've been talking with some either uh, foodies themselves or some chefs that I've been talking with. This has come up multiple times in conversation, and that's all about Yelp. Uh, so I've got a few stories that I want to talk about, uh, like headlines that I've seen, uh, that have come up this week for me. And the first one has to do with David Chang. So he was on a, a the, the bigger industry podcast in, in the room that that's eaters upsell podcast, which I've referenced on this show before. I'm a fan uh, of that, of that show. They definitely get cooler guests than I, than I do, but they asked David Chang about Yelp and he had a lot of great insight. So to start off, I hope I hope all you know what Yelp is. It's 2017 and you're able to kind of successfully navigate the internet to listen to me talk. So we'll assume you know what Yelp is. But apparently the Momofuku uh, empire holding chef has kind of changed his stance on the platform lately. And in 2014, he was quoted in an article saying, quote, for the most part, no chef is going to take a Yelper's review seriously because most of the Yelp reviews are wrong, end quote. And that got some eyebrows raised because more recently, Momofuku has actually hosted dinner events for Yelp elite members. So Yelp will give status to their most active users, and those are called Yelp elite members. Um, so the same chef who was quoted in saying what I just quoted also has restaurants that host dinners for them. So that was a little bit weird. But upon sitting down with these, uh, I guess, interviewee interviewers for this podcast, David Chang uh, got a chance to kind of restate his stance. And th this is something that I don't mind. I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm calling him out for it. I just want you to make sure that there's like a full scope of he didn't like it and now he's kind of going in a different direction. I'm not taken aback by it. Like these landscapes change all the time. Platforms change. I mean, we talked la just last week about chefs who hated photographers in their space and now they're profiting off of making Instagrammable dishes. So I have nothing against it, but he starts by saying, quote, Yelpers had no credibility to speak about food, decor, or ambiance. Uh, and what's more, Yelpers lacked empathy as they reviewed chefs doing their jobs. He, he says, I don't think Yelp reviewers understand the pain it can cause chefs. We're not perfect individuals, and we shouldn't become a whipping post for people for whatever reason. End quote. So for me, this is very much so where I'm at. Uh, when you open the floodgates and make 
these kind of reviews accessible to everyone. Uh, a lot of the and on the flip side, a lot of the big food bloggers, the one that are the ones that are opinionated or have eaten out a lot or have some sort of a connection to writing about food in a very like um, thoughtful way. And they're not blogging anymore. Uh, and when they do, it's usually them going to eat out at their friend's place, whether it's a restaurant or like their 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 homes. Um, or sometimes you have these food bloggers that are eating just at so many places, they're still really in it, but they don't end up getting a chance to give as detailed of a review of it as, as they sh- maybe should or would want to. They also kind of just document their experiences. They don't give any sort of stars or... Um, numbers out of five or out of ten so you don't have any sort of way to kind of like reference them to other places which is is good and bad we can get into that if any of you want in the comments but uh he even references david chang references in the interview and quote i believe that yelp is probably going to be one of if not the only source of food criticism someday it's like rotten tomato score for restaurants if you just look at how people consume movie reviews now no one reads that shit anymore unless you're an avid new yorker fan end quote uh, you know, I'm I'm on the fence on this point. So whether or not that's actually going to happen, I'm not entirely sure. And he can't be sure either, but I'm not the best person to ask that question to. I, I still think that we're in a day and age where at this point in June of 2017, people rely uh, a lot on word of mouth with restaurants. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is usually a resource I go to when I'm going to the movies just to kind of get a grip on the general consensus of the movie. Like, sometimes I'll get uh, either advertised to very well, or I'll just kind of see the trailers that were good, and I'm really amped about a movie, but I find out that, you know, every, everybody hated it. Uh, so I will use it for that reason, but like like right now, for example, if I was going to the movies, I'd either probably see Wonder Woman or The Mummy. So there's literally two options. So I'd weigh those on Rotten Tomato ratings and obviously see Wonder Woman, but that's just, you know, and, but those things ebb and flow, right? So movies are in theaters for what, maybe four months. And with restaurants, they uh, hopefully, hopefully have the goal of staying around longer than that. So longer than four months, but that's where this becomes a different game with something like Yelp. Uh, so it's, it's, it's on the restaurant too, in a lot of ways. Movies put out a ton of trailers, they generate hype, and there's sometimes a book, uh, that the movie's based off of, so you have an entire backstory where you've kind of made fans of that story and the characters and what you're doing, and they find a way to get you excited about it, and then they open, and then it's generally like a hit or a miss, and then they make money and they move on. But with restaurants, and this is one of the reasons why I don't think you can compare Yelp to Rotten Tomatoes in this way, is that a lot of times a restaurant doesn't end up telling their story at all. Or maybe they do, but they don't reach enough scale with that whatever piece they put out to make sure that you know about the place that you're sitting in when you sit in that chair. And, you know, yes, it's it's great and kind of romantic to say, I let the food speak for itself, but what really happens when your line cook is having a bad day and sends something out that's undercooked or overcooked or seasoned incorrectly? That is when bad reviews happen, and that's why I don't think you can kind of reference movies to to food, right? Because also, what happens if you guys decide to change concepts on the restaurant, right? So you have these reviews that may be backlogged for two or three years, but the concept has entirely changed. So yes, someone had a bad experience, but because of that bad experience, you've kind of rebranded or reconcepted or rewritten the menu. And that review still lives, you know, cemented into your your profile. Uh, and you can do, do other things to, of course, combat that. I'm very aware, but it, 
that that's why I kind of get a little bit taken aback when I see that comparison of Rotten Tomatoes to Yelp. Limeade sip. Um, so, you know, the, yeah, the, it, it's more or less where I'm at. I'd love to hear where you got, what you guys have to say, but where I left off with this is where bad reviews happen is more or less the, the best segue I could have given to my next Yelp related piece. And the reason that I wanted to dedicate the first part of this show to it is because, um, Restaurant Manifesto, if none of you are familiar, is kind of one of those by industry for industry sites, uh, very similar to like True Cooks or um, there's a couple other ones, but uh, those 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 by industry for industry people aren't my favorite, but that's that's another video. But they have an article that they published uh, that they actually uh, took from a server's perspective about getting a bad Yelp review and where the reviewer targeted the service specifically, uh, of being their source of feeling upset. So you can read the full article. It's going to be linked up in the show notes. Uh, but it's in, it's surprisingly empathetic and well-written. They make sure to kind of go from the, the diner's shoes when they, when they write their, I guess, rebuttal, you could say, but I want to share a few different quotes with you. Uh, Quote, the, the shadowy world of online reviewing can be very influential to a restaurant's success or failure. Star ratings matter, and the two-star shitburger this guy left on our front door isn't helping ours any. But if you drill down, the virtual you'll find under the surface obscures the accuracy of the ratings. What I've learned doing restaurant work is that often bad restaurant experiences happen because of a table's own issues. The root of their malcontentedness has nothing to do with me. They're difficult to please, went in with unrealistic expectations, didn't feel comfortable spending so much money, or simply didn't enjoy their company. So I just think it's important to read more. I, I, the, this is my punchline. Be at, Become educated. Find people that you trust to get your reviews from and ultimately take advantage of the fact that you, some of something that you can't use in movies if you are the person that's running these restaurants or providing these experiences. Um, speak up if you're a guest and definitely share what you aren't happy with while you're there. That's something that is kind of universal with everyone who has a hospitality establishment or writes about uh, things about Yelp or these crowdsourced reviews. Tell us <laughs> that what you want, basically, so that we can help you while you're, while you're still in your seat. Uh I think this is referenced in that article about the server that, you know, had had um, it was just a little bit of quietness and um, not necessarily being upset, but just there was no you couldn't read their attitude when they were sitting in the seat, but then they leave and you end up getting this scathing review. It just more or less sets us up the best for success as these hospitality professionals to make sure that we can successfully provide you the best experience while you're there instead of kind of grasping at straws when you leave to try to uh, repair, put a Band-Aid on something that we, we left you with when you were actually, hopefully, supposed to be getting a good experience. So next up, on a lighter note, there is a video going around right now of Gordon Ramsay breaking down uh, halibut in a world record fashion. So he does 15 40 gram portions of halibut in uh, 65 seconds from a whole fish, which is pretty impressive. I would love to play that game. Uh, he goes head to head against this fishmonger from uh, Alaska. I don't know why I was going to say Australia, uh, but it's pretty entertaining. That's in the show notes for you. That can hopefully give you a little bit of um, entertainment via that the famous British chef. 
So next up is a story from Grub Street. Crazy enough, they just brought on Mark Bittman, uh, which is another article in and of itself. But uh, upon him kind of arriving to the uh, platform, he published his own article. Uh, Mark Bittman, of course, is famed from his own publications, his own cookbooks, as well as writing for the New York Times. Um, But what's interesting about him joining Grub Street is that he has been on an 18-month hiatus from writing. But he's back now. He's with Grub Street. And the article that he talks about is all about, quote, the new foodieism, end quote. So in the article I linked up, it's very, very interesting. It's Uh, another one of those very rhetorical articles that writers will often publish where they just kind of ask a lot of questions, don't provide a lot of uh, answers or solutions, Um, just more of like we need to be more aware about X, Y, and Z. Uh, But Mark Bittman has always kind of been someone that thinks beyond the plate. He's not just about the recipes or the food. So in this article, he talks a a little bit about politics and global economies and agriculture and more where he says there's a difference between a foodie and a real foodie, saying, quote, I don't mind the term, but it's got to mean something more than talking about eating. A new foodie should address these issues in the food community directly or indirectly. We do we do work that helps everyone. To be a foodie now is to know that we must protect the rights of farm workers, retail workers, restaurant workers, immigrants, anyone who is harassed at work or at home, mostly women, and laborers who make a minimum wage or less, often without benefits, end quote. And this is something that I would think that every chef has has grappled with because once you get to a scale, whether or not you're doing uh, larger scale uh, casual stuff or if you're doing very, very ambitious fine dining stuff, it's not like creative fields, other creative fields in that way. So my, my one of my examples that I like to give when I'm coming up with this other conversation with other creatives is it doesn't... You never ask where the painter sourced their paint or their canvas from, right? Or the musician doesn't get asked about the sustainability of the materials in the guitar that they're playing, right? But chefs often get charged with kind of contributing on these big global issues. And I personally think that sometimes that can be a little bit too much to ask. And don't get me wrong, there's there's chefs that are all about this. But for me, there's people that are smarter and better educated and way more driven than me that should be tackling these issues. I'm not feeding enough people on the daily. Like my dinners are for like 12 to 20 people. I I am not the person to ask about these big global problems, but I think it's one of those, um, um, issues that are big enough and far reaching. Uh, it's not like, um, how would I compare this? All of us have to eat, right? So it's a, it's a problem that affects everyone. If, uh, there's food that isn't available or that food supply is getting short or the price is going up. Um, But it's natural for researchers and professors and politicians to kind of ask chefs for their input because we work with food in a way that nobody else does. So chefs like Massimo Bottura and Dan Barber um, kind of doing their projects with utilizing waste and feeding the homeless is amazing, but I really need to be straight up and say that it's not something that I keep in the front of my mind. And of course, given the decision between something that's like sustainable or not, when there's no difference in quality, I'll of course go for the sustainable one. And I'm all for fair wages and higher wages even and nutrition and all, all of it. I'm, I'm 100% for all of it, but I'd much rather be an example and then have the researchers come to me with solutions that I can implement in what I'm already doing and then use that. They can use that as a proxy to say, hey, look, we tried this with someone who serves food and it works. Not the other way around, where they have these problems and they're like, 
maybe we should ask a chef it's not what we do you know it's it's it shouldn't be it shouldn't be that way but I, I this is one of those another piece that i'd love your take on is it is it on chefs to contribute um definitely let me know in the comments it's so refreshing lime cherry basil um so staying in that realm i want to talk a little bit about an article i saw shared by lisa abend um, she didn't share it. Well, I'm sure she did share it, but that's not how I saw it. She wrote it. Um, she is an amazing author known for kind of covering what's what in all of the world's best restaurants. She wrote, um, a beautiful, uh, list, not a list, kind of more or less like a memoir, uh, or, uh, all about her time at El Bui when all the stages were there. She wrote about Noma while it was a thing, and she just published a piece on Memo called uh, Why This Three-Starred Restaurant Has a Three-Day Work Week. So a few things you need to know right off the bat. Uh, Maemo is in in Oslo, in Norway. And disclaimer, Chef Esben was a good friend of Lisvaka, the place where I worked in Norway, uh, a country where the median hour work week is 37 and a half hours. Um, so just shorter than ours in, in the U.S. But, you know, us us in the U.S. kind of take that as a, as a guideline, not not a rule. Overtime is a thing here, not so much in, in Norway or anywhere in Scandinavia. Um, but Esben switched everyone up. Uh, so he has the infrastructure of a three Michelin-starred restaurant with a great location in a prosperous country, um, and he's even managed to sacrifice some gain on it. So, quote, I'm, I'm fine with just breaking even. It goes back to sacrifice. What are you willing to give up? For us, it meant giving up on profit, end quote. Um, so he's basically taken these um, these hours, these 37 and a half hours, and spread them over a three-day time period. So yes, you still are working 12 to 13 hour days, but it's only three days, and then you kind of get four days off. So that's a very, very interesting schedule, especially for a chef. Um, but I'm quoting again, the exceedingly long days are also part of the industry's culture. Many chefs adhere to them because that's the way it always has always been done. And the willingness to put in the time and miss all of those Christmas dinners and family birthdays is a sign of devotion, a distinguishing trait that forms part of the collective identity, like burn marks or a full sleeve of ink. But the effects are per uh, bad. <laughs> Can't say that word. Burnout, exhaustion, depression, and one of the highest divorce rates, divorce rates of any profession. So, uh, Esben has kind of cited some of the payoffs that he's seen from this three-day work week with his staff. So he cites more creativity, more driven staff as a result, which is, you know, it, it's got to be a natural response, right? So when you're actually well-rested, you're way more likely to show up to work with a smile on your face, uh, be a little bit more driven. You have that time off that's not so pressure-related uh, so that you can kind of... Um, mall over ideas, have more of a clear space. You don't show up to work worried about your spouse or your kids or um, maybe financials as much. Um, but I'm all for this. This is kind of obvious. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm quoting Esben again. I don't know if it will work. Maybe a year from now we'll all we'll find we've gotten lazy, but right now I want to try this. And if it does work, why go back to being a miserable fuck? End quote. So personally, I'd love to see the long-term effects of this. Um, they have just implemented it. I noticed that he posted on Instagram that he was looking for cooks and that he was offering a four-day work week. I didn't know that it had gone down to three, so this article is great news for that. Um, but I would love to see, again, the long-term effects of it, how it would scale with a casual place, right? Like, of course, it's easier to justify with a place that's like pushing creative boundaries to give people uh, more time off so that they come in a little bit more refreshed. Um, but 
put your people first. I think it's huge. Would you dig this schedule if you're if you're a cook or maybe a front of house person? Let me know in the comments. Uh, I'd I'd be interested to see how I would adapt to a three day work week. So last up is actually a comment that I got when I asked on Facebook yesterday for stories, and that question is, uh, quote, who is using a piece of technology in an interesting way in the industry, both in the kitchen and towards the guest or the customer? So I'm going to go again in a, hopefully a, an interesting direction for you here. I really like questions like this because... Um, Hopefully it provides kind of a short-term answer, so it answers the question directly, but hopefully it'll also as well give kind of a long-term view into how I'm thinking about things. And this isn't me saying I'm the messiah or anything, but I, I want to be an example of someone who's thinking forward, but still very grounded in what's happening right now. So let's get into the first part. So in the kitchen, that amazing MIT video um, uh, where they make shape-shifting pasta, have you seen this? I don't think we've covered this on this show yet. Um but it's so crazy, you need to see it with your own eyes. My mouth literally gaped open when I was watching this video. So they make sheets of pasta and they extrude them into shapes or punch them out. Uh, and there's bacterium inside that transforms their shapes. So shrinking and expanding in response to humidity. So saying that modern pastas will kind of get packaged and shipped with 67% of their volume as air when they're packaged. So this you know, has has implications for, for, for mass market stuff as well as kind of these transforming moving dishes that they show in the, the, the mind explosion video uh, that is that, that Vimeo piece that they published. So I will link that in the show notes. Definitely, definitely worth your time to watch. Um, but my answer to the towards the guest part, um, machine learning. Machine learning is my answer here. Uh, that is the place where tech is going to make the most impact with the guest. Uh, more or less learning what you like and what you don't like is going to be huge going forward. Um, I'm also a big fan of all the food delivery platforms that more or less save people time and allow restaurants to feed you without coming into the space. I also think that's really, really great. Um, and that's all, of course, you know, it, it, could, it could be a thing without technology, but... Um, you know, just being able to have easy access so that the consumer can easily order um, and get it in a in a in a timely manner. That is that is technology's doing. Um, <clears throat> I've also linked an article uh, that came out a while ago on Danny Meyer and how he's using Apple Watches to increase communication and overall the guests' experience in his spaces. So you could kind of be standing at the host stand if you're working there and send a message to a server captain that's maybe like in the dining room that their next table has arrived. So you can kind of be ready to greet them. Or like, for example, if, you, if you're standing by the door taking someone's coat and you hear about an anniversary, you can more or less just quickly shoot a message over to someone either in the kitchen or someone else. You could communicate that faster and with less effort with technology and really kind of achieve that surprise and delight effect. Um, and I think that's super, super cool stuff, but taking it back one more time to the food aspect, like how, how it, um, happens in the kitchen with tech, everybody, we're, we're at a point right now where everybody rolls their eyes at modernist stuff. Um, but to me, that's the same thing that happened with white tablecloth dining a few years back, right? It was just like, everybody was doing white tablecloth stuff. It was very, very stuffy. Um, and then everybody, everybody was like, nope, we're not doing tablecloths. I would, I would struggle for you to name a place that's, you know, new and up and coming that uses tablecloths still. Cause it's just not a thing. People just don't, you know, use it. But then you see other, like 
best new restaurant this year from James Beard went to a restaurant in New York that is French and a little bit stuffy and does white tablecloth stuff. So it's it's very similar to fashion in that way where it kind of it gets trendy and then it falls out of uh, out of trend and then it ends up having a resurgence. So I would love to see a resurgence of modernist technique kind of fused with our current obsession of beautiful product um, and making it a little bit more personal again. Um, ultimately, though, it's very difficult to kind of bring technology into the mix with something like feeding people for me. Uh, in its truest form, I'm not talking about like big scale stuff, but like if you're eating lunch at your office, that can definitely be scaled with success with technology. But the intimate experience of having someone cook for you either like at their home or maybe like how I like to cook at more or less like a counter style environment, bringing technology in is difficult because so many senses are involved in that kind of an experience. So we truthfully don't have advanced enough capabilities yet to affect those senses in a meaningful way that will ultimately enhance the experience. So I've said it before and I'll say it again, we will have a VR and an AR tasting menu. Will it be good? Probably not, but it's a very human thing, right? Eating, eating itself, getting cooked for. Um, but my thing with technology now and the current state of how it is, is any way that we can save time or effort in the process of getting you from where you're sitting right now and listening to me into a seat where I can feed you is where technology can help. Um, but the moment where you take what I made for you and kind of put it into your face, that's still a very analog experience, and I, I, I prefer it that way. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Our non-industry story this week is actually a piece of tech that I found really interesting, and that's from GoPro. Uh, so the camera company has a new camera that they're currently testing with other uh, content creators and video cinematographer professionals, and that's something that they're calling the GoPro Fusion. So it is a 360-degree camera that shoots in high enough resolution to where you can kind of take it and zoom in on whatever you want the audience to focus on and have them experience that and then kind of pan out again, make it 360, and then you can make it the little, like zoom out even more and make it a tiny little planet so you can see everything at, at the same time, all with the edit. So you have the control as the um, cinematographer, director, producer to make those calls for how the ultimate final piece will be. Um, which I think is crazy cool, right? So GoPro, if you're listening to me, I'm a content creator and I want one of those. I'll make a dope video for you. Uh, but I think this has amazing potential with food bloggers, right? Maybe keeping it in the industry uh, with this non-industry story, but being able to record an entire meal, but then like focus on certain people talking or certain dishes. I know the normal 360 experience is kind of like this open world. You can kind of look around wherever you want, uh, which ends up being hit or miss in some in some instances, right? Like it's hard to keep attention for long periods of time where you just set a camera down because. 360 doesn't do very well with jump cuts. You have to kind of set the camera down and then everything has to happen around it uh, because if you do too many jump cuts, the person wearing the, the VR goggles ends up wanting to pass out. Um, and people are always looking uh, around, so it's very difficult to make sure that they're looking at where the action is. But So that's why I found this super interesting as a content creator, uh, but it's not scheduled to release until the end of this year. So sad face on that, but uh, stay tuned for amazing 360 degree goodness from me if I ever get my hands on one. Uh, I've played around with it once or twice. Uh, I rented a 360 degree camera. If you go to my YouTube channel, there's an interesting uh, video. We went to uh, a pretty big Starbucks here in Seattle that you should check out. 
Um, but with that, this has been episode 18 of The Emulsion. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you have any stories you want to either comment on or have questions on or even submit stories that you're interested in or have seen for next week's show, go ahead and leave a comment on your platform of choice. I post this bad boy on YouTube and Facebook and iTunes and my own personal site, of course, www.justincana.com. I would love to hear from you, but regardless, I will see you next week. I'm Justin Kana. Have a good one.